You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah this morning. Nehemiah. We are beginning a new uh, series of sermons in in this book, uh, and I've entitled this series, When God Builds his people. A lot of times when we think about Nehemiah, we think about the building of the wall, and that that is what the book uh, is about, rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. But I really think the book is about much more than that. It really is about how God builds his people. It's about God reviving and reforming his people so that they have the courage and conviction to live as the people of God. And so, a greater work than building the walls that God does in this book of Nehemiah is Him building His people. So, I'm excited to study it together with you for the next several weeks and see how God is going to continue building us together uh, as His people. Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we begin today. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses." Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray together. Father, we... We ask humbly, Lord, that as we come to your word, that uh, you, you would speak to us and do the work you have intended in your purpose and will for our lives. 
And I pray that you would use me today as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease. And your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What's going on here with this character of Nehemiah? Who is this guy and what's happened to him that he's so grieved and moved in his spirit? Let me give you a very brief uh, rundown and background of this for a moment. Hundreds of years before... God had chosen his, a people that would be his, the Israelites, and he made a covenant with them, and he promised to, to bless them, and he did. God blessed them in many ways, and he led them to a rich and wealthy land that he had promised to them, and he drove out all of the inhabitants before them, and he promised to continue to bless them if they would stay faithful to him, but they didn't. Just as Adam had done in the garden So the nation of Israel did in the promised land. They rebelled against God, and they chose their own way rather than trusting God and and His way. God sent prophets to them to warn them, to turn them back, but they didn't listen. Instead, they continued to turn toward their own sin and their own rebellion. They even attacked the prophets and beat them and threw them into prisons and pits and and killed some of them. Finally, God said, enough, and He raised up a mighty nation, Babylon. And He sent the Babylonians, and they came and defeated His people, Israel, and carried many of them off to a foreign land. This experience is called the exile. God's people were exiled. This is what Nehemiah was talking about in verse 2 when he said his brothers came to him, those who had survived the exile. And so after many years, God raised up another nation, Persia, and another leader, Cyrus, and he allowed God's people to start coming back to their land and to rebuild. He even helped them rebuild the temple so they could worship again. That story is told in the book right before Nehemiah, the book of Ezra. Nehemiah is kind of a continuation of that story. And we learn here in chapter 1, Nehemiah was serving as cupbearer to the king of Persia, a guy named Artaxerxes. And his role as a cupbearer was much more than just a butler. He was really a trusted advisor, a counselor to the king. This was a, really an incredible position, a, a great responsibility. And the fact that Nehemiah held this position speaks very well of the kind of person that he was, a person of character, a person of ability. I think even in the glimpses of this, and we could talk more about this, is the glimpse of Christ-likeness in Nehemiah. Here's a picture of godliness and Christ-likeness in the, in the nation of Persia, in the courts of their king. But this also points to the amazing sovereign providential hand of God that he had Nehemiah in this particular position. When God wants to accomplish his work, he always prepares his people, and he, he seems to put them in the right places at the right time. And we see this so many times in Scripture. God put Nehemiah in Susa just a generation before he had put Esther there. And just as he had put Daniel and his three friends uh, in the courts of Babylon he now puts Nehemiah here. When God is doing, preparing to do a great work, He always begins by doing a great work in His people so that He can work through them. Most of this chapter is taken up with Nehemiah's prayer. 
And it's a really a, a great testimony of how he responds when he hears difficult news. Verse 2, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. I would just pause there for a moment. Why would Nehemiah even be concerned about this? Uh, it, Nehemiah had every reason not to be concerned at all about Jerusalem. Uh, he wasn't even born when Israel sinned against the Lord and were exiled. This was long past that time. It had been 150 years or so since the Jews had started to come back. Nehemiah is about 800 miles away in Persia. He is surrounded by luxury like you could never imagine, such comforts being in the position that he is in. Why in the world would he even be concerned about Jerusalem to begin with? The prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 15, he says, Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? Nehemiah did. And it's evidence to me that God is, was working in his heart. He's working to prepare his servant uh, to, so that he can work through him. God begins by renewing and reordering the sinful hearts of his people. He begins by changing them. People like you, like Nehemiah, people like you and me, he begins to work in us and he begins to replace the priorities of our own kingdoms and our own world and how, and how we go about things to begin to think about his. This is a work of God. This is apparent to me that God has been working in the heart of Nehemiah for some time so that he is... Uh, despite the wealth and luxury of palace life, he is simply not too content to sit in that wealth, to sit in that place of comfort, to sit in that time when he's thinking only about his own kingdom. Instead, he suddenly, he, he's coming aware and have a, has a concern for the glory of God, for the welfare of God's people and the increase of God's kingdom. This is a work of God in Nehemiah's life. And, and frankly, church, it's a work that we need to pray for in our own hearts and lives. Amen? Are you concerned about kingdom matters? Do, does the things about the kingdom break your heart? Burden your heart? Or is, are you consumed with thoughts about your own? You know, some people prefer not to know what's going on because uh, information might bring obligation. I think uh, it was Mark Twain who once said this, all you need in this life is ignorance and confidence and then success is sure. I mean, if your goal in life is to live for yourself and to please yourself and to make sure that all your comforts are met and you just want to come to church just to make sure you check that box off the list to make sure you got everything in there, then, then you're probably going to be uh, confident and successful. But when God begins to work in your heart and He begins to open your eyes to the truth, there, there are some things that changes in you. You are suddenly no longer content just for you. You're not content with turning a blind eye to the needs around you. Your heart changes. Your concerns begin to change. Your priorities begin to change. It sure seems like that's what's happening in Nehemiah's heart here. Verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there is 
In the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. This once magnificent city, Jerusalem, was in shambles. Where, where one time, um, this city of great glory, there was now great reproach. And Nehemiah likely had have known about this. This wasn't a, a secret. These, these things have been in ruins for nearly 150 years. It wasn't likely the first time that he heard about this, but at this particular time, God moves in his life. He begins to burden him about this. Nehemiah begins to feel God's heart toward this shame, toward the weakness of his people. He realized that in, in the name of his God, that, that that God was being disgraced by what was going on in Jerusalem. God's people were open to ridicule and attack because of this. Verse 4, Nehemiah tells us, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I can tell you as we study this book, this was the first of 12 instances of prayers that we're going to find in the book of Nehemiah. The fact that the book opens with prayer, and as we'll see, closes in prayer as well, tells us much about this, this book. Near, clearly, Nehemiah realizes that it would only be through a work of God and through prayer that anything like this would ever be done and changed. Deep dependence on God through prayer has always been the hallmark of God's people. We see it over and over again. It's true, I think, that at times we perhaps are guilty of praying when action is needed so that prayer becomes an excuse for inaction. I think at other times uh, we think about prayer as being a last resort, you know, when all of our efforts have run out and we're really desperate and then we can start throwing up uh, prayers. This is not at all how Nehemiah viewed prayer. For Nehemiah, prayer was not only his last resort, but his first. And everything in the middle, before he did anything else, he prayed. Ne Nehemiah, as we're, as we're going to see, was a man of action, but prayer was his first action. And church, we need to understand this. We need to understand this so much that at a personal level, at a corporate level in the life of our church, we desire God to revitalize our church. We desire for Him to revive our church, to renew us, to conform us, to be more like Christ, to be more obedient to His Word. We desire for God to use us to make His name known in the community, to see people saved, to see disciples made from the neighborhoods to the nations. We want our hearts and lives to be refocused on the kingdom and not our own. We want His kingdom to come. But hear this, we can do none of this on our own. It will only be through God. Utterly dependent on God to do these things. And so what has always characterized God's people is not what they do for God, but always what God has done for them and what God is doing through them. It's all of God, and therefore, it must all be by prayer. Prayer. It should characterize our lives. 
It should characterize our church and utter dependence on God through prayer. So Nehemiah 1, 5 through 11 is one of the great prayers of the Bible, and one of the ways we can learn to pray with great power is to study prayers like these and then to utilize them in our own lives. So I want to draw some attention to Nehemiah's prayer and several uh, ingredients or characteristics, if you will, of Nehemiah's uh, uh, prayer for us. First, I want you to notice the persistence of Nehemiah's prayer. Verse 4, Nehemiah tells us, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. If you study the dates that are given in verse 1 and the dates that are given in chapter 2, verse 1, it shows that Nehemiah prayed at least three months, if not five months, before he did anything else. I don't think it means necessarily that he prayed this exact prayer we have in verses 5 through 11, but I think this prayer reflects in general terms what he prayed. If you notice verse 11 for a moment, he, he says, Oh, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This was likely the gist of a prayer that he prayed daily for three to five months, maybe 150 times. He asked God for an answer to daily, today. Grant me success. He prayed this for, for months, and when the answer is not today, he kept praying. We, we are often impatient in our prayers. And I think we tend to think that it's essential for God to respond to our prayers immediately. The answers that we hope to see. I, I was reminded this week about a little boy who whistled loudly during the pastoral prayer in the church. The pastor was just settling into his prayer, and the boy started whistling. The mom turned around and pinched him and said, stop doing that. And after church, she said, what in the world motivated you to do that? And the little boy said, well, he said, I'd been praying for the longest time that God would teach me to whistle, and he just then did. <laughs> We often pray that way, right? And we're impatient in, in our prayers because we don't get the answers that, that we want quickly. But as you know, God's timetable is not ours, right? And His timetable is perfect. So Nehemiah is praying. He clearly has a vision of the purposes of God here, but he's, he's not seeing a clear path forward. He prays this daily, grant me success today. I mean, if you think about what is he supposed to do about this? What is he supposed to do about the walls in Jerusalem, 800 miles away? He's the cupbearer to the king of, of Persia. He could lose his own life by trying to venture out in this. What did he do? He continued to pray. There was a discipline in his prayers. He prayed daily. Does, uh, does prayer mark your life in this way? J.C. Ryle writes this, he asks, I ask whether you pray because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. 
All the children of God on earth are alike in this respect. From the moment there is any life and reality about their religion, they pray. Just as the first sign of life in an infant when born into the world is the act of breathing, so the first act of men and women when they are born again is praying. This one, this is one of the common marks of all the elect of God. Does prayer characterize you? Nehemiah was persistent and disciplined in in prayer, and everything that Nehemiah was able to do for the kingdom of God, it starts right here with prayer. Are you committed in this way? Church, we must be if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be. Notice something else about the shape of his prayer. Notice it was marked by adoration, by adoration. Like a lot of other biblical prayers, Nehemiah begins by telling God about God. Verse 5, he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Such a prayer, focusing on God, helps us to keep things into perspective and to put things in a right perspective. When we remember that God is God, our problems take a smaller dimension, right? And so if you're about to undertake a great work and you, you, know, you begin with prayer, here's the fact, you need a great God. You need a God who is great in power and goodness and mercy, a God who can handle anything, a God in whom there is nothing impossible. And in addition to to that, it it is the greatness of God that fuels us to be the people of God and to do anything for Him to begin with. Why fight your sin? Why pursue holiness in your life? Why, why, Why begin any new ministry? Why invest in the kingdom? Why give yourself to expanding it? Church, it is because our God is great. It wasn't just broken down walls that burdened Nehemiah. It was the fact that God's glory was being demeaned. That people were looking in on this city and thinking, this is the city of God. It was the walls were torn down. It was in shambles. And so, Nehemiah's prayer here to the God of heaven, notice that phrase. That's a phrase he repeats often in this book. It shows us that his mind is saturated with God, whether it be the greatness of God, the faithfulness of God, the redeeming love of God. He prayed as Jesus would later teach us to pray, our Father in heaven, God in heaven. Your kingdom come. Much of the church growth movement today is, is based, I think, on a misinterpretation of Proverbs 29, 18. I'm sure you've heard this verse. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Have you ever heard that verse? And that verse has been misused and abused, I think, to push kind of a business model for growth on the church. But I want you to notice that that verse is not talking at all about that kind of thing, because what's needed most in churches today and in our lives as individuals today is to be captured by a vision of God and His greatness. That is what changes lives. That is what 
urges us to go and live for Christ. What the church needs more than anything, more than new programs, more than new plans, is a fresh vision of the greatness of God. Pray for this in your life. Pray for this in our church, that we would have a great vision of a great God and be changed by that. Adoration of God marked to Nehemiah's prayers. Third, notice confession of sin marked his prayer. Verse 6, he prays, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Notice, Nehemiah says, not just Israel's sin, but he says, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. So here we are. We're in the prayer already. Notice, Nehemiah hasn't prayed at all yet about a wall, but rather his prayers inward focus and because he recognized that ultimately the greatest need of the hour was not broken down walls, but it was the broken relationship between God and His people. Their sin, this, and, and this sin is both corporate and personal, he acknowledges, he, he confesses. And until there is inward transformation, there would be no external rebuilding. If God's ear was going to be open to hear his prayer, he would have to cover Nehemiah's own sin. He would have to, God would have to cover the people of Israel's sins. That would have to be restored. Notice the particular sin Nehemiah confesses is not keeping God's word. That's what sin is. The reason they were in such reproach and brokenness was their own doing. It was because they were choosing not to follow God's word. The same is true for us, church. Most of us have a Bible. Many, many of us have multiple Bibles, and yet how often we turn aside to this truth. If sin is the cause, then repentance is the answer. That's what Nehemiah prays. Verse 8, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Repentance is often the missing element in much of modern Christianity today. And even the church. Because the truth is, we want affirmation and the blessings of God. But we want those blessings without the pain of turning our backs on our sins. We want forgiveness but not repentance. We, we seek to live in many ways so closely to 
having one foot in the world and one foot in the church, trying to play it safe, we fall into that Romans 6 mentality of sinning that grace may abound. But notice in Nehemiah's prayer, he understands this. He gets this. He has nothing to do with this kind of thinking. He understands that apart from genuine heartfelt repentance, a turning from sin to God, there is no forgiveness. There must be repentance that marks us. Raymond Brown puts it well. He says, the first word of those who are burdened with grief is to acknowledge that their greatest need is not immediate relief from the present trouble, but eternal forgiveness. And church, forgiveness only comes through repentance of sin. Listen to that great promise of God again, verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the utmost, uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants, Nehemiah prays, and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What an amazing prayer. Nehemiah, Nehemiah says, we are your people, God. Our only hope is in you. We turn from our sins. You, you have redeemed us. You've bought us. You've paid for us. And you've promised in your word that if we repent, you would gather us again and make us into your people. Most of that prayer is from the book of uh, uh, Deuteronomy, but it sounds like it's from the Gospels, right? I mean, it's, it sounds like a gospel prayer. It, indeed, it's, it's hard. It's not hard to hear the good news of Jesus in this prayer. We think about the one who redeemed us. How did He redeem us? Through the cross. His great power washing away our sins, paying for our salvation. And so, church, it's the gospel right here in the Old Testament. And let me remind you, every good work flows from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even the work of Nehemiah before Christ. It flowed from the gospel. The greatest work God ever does in our lives is, is redemption. And before any other work can be done, you must be redeemed. If your life is filled with brokenness and things falling apart right now, hear this incredible model from us. Start with prayer. Start with persistently adoring God, confessing your sin before God. Cry out to Him through faith and ask Him to redeem your soul. There's not a work that God more wants to do in our lives than this. And Christian, if, if you're already a believer, uh, then ask Him to break your heart over the things that break His. Ask Him to break your heart over your sinfulness before Him. Plead with Him to do this work in your life and plead with Him to do this work in all of our lives as His church that an ongoing repentance would mark us, that we would be marked by a people of, of prayer and, and confession, repenting before God, that we would keep His Word as He has called us to do. Finally, note the commitment of Nehemiah's prayer. He ends his prayer, verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
And then he tells us, now I was cupbearer to the king. That last statement about being cupbearer, again, suggests that Nehemiah was beginning to recognize the providential hand of God in his life. That this was perhaps his Esther moment when he realized, like her, that God had put him in this position for such a time as this. His time to serve the Lord. His time to lay his life down on the altar of God, to make himself available that he might be part of God's work. Notice his prayer. Lord, give success to your servant today. He's asking God to take care of the impossible. Again, there were huge obstacles standing in the way between him and Jerusalem. Nehemiah couldn't just quit his job. (laughs) He served the king. He had to get permission of King Artie. How in the world was this going to happen? Besides that, where's he going to get the resources to do this this project? According to Ezra, chapter 4, verse 21, King Artie had already issued a decree to stop the work in the city of Jerusalem. How's he going to go and convince this foreign king to let him rebuild the defenses around the city, in the city of Jerusalem? How's he going to get all of this done? I tell you how he's going to do that, by praying to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He prayed, notice he prays for the king. Lord, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. I love how he phrases that. The king, you know, is just a man. God is sovereign over even kings. He's sovereign over even circumstances and obstacles. One commentator said, Nehemiah's greatness came from asking great things of a great God and attempting great things in reliance on Him. So on a personal level, I don't know what's going on in in all of your lives today about what brokenness that you may be dealing with or what needs to be rebuilt in your life. But one thing I know But as the people of God, it begins, and it continues, and it even ends with a commitment to prayer, to pray. Will you make that commitment today? Will you pray this remarkable prayer in Nehemiah? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today, this great story and all that it teaches us, Lord, about how you work in our hearts and lives. Lord, like Nehemiah, there are things that we are burdened about today. There are some things that we should be burdened about that we're not. Lord, burden our hearts with the things that burden yours. And may we commit ourselves, as Nehemiah did, to prayer. Our dependence, Lord, is on you. Your word says that apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. Lord, work in our hearts and lives, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. 
I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.